Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you now to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. As we've been slowly making our way through this very epistle for the past few months, I have to confess that in the background I've had my eyes set on this very chapter. And as the time to preach chapter 9 drew closer and closer, my heart grew more and more burdened. The reason being that this chapter isn't only tremendously weighty and substantial when it comes to the doctrine of Christ, but also because of how technical it is. Uh, It's a chapter that presents with it certain challenges that would quite honestly be more suitable, in my estimation, within a Bible study context, but uh, we firmly believe here and we confess here in this church that all Scripture is divinely inspired by God, and we believe here firmly that we have the great privilege and responsibility to preach through God's Word verse by verse. So uh, that being said, we press on. Well, if you're there in chapter 9 with me, let's read starting in verse 1, and we'll be reading through Verse 10, again, it's Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1 through 10. Church, this is God's word. He writes, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared. The first part, in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil the part of the tabernacle which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. And of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Now when these things had been thus prepared, The priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle, performing the services. But in the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. Concern only with foods and drinks, various washings and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of reformation. Amen. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Our good and Loving Father, as we turn to your word, we pray that you would open our ears to quickly grasp thy spirit's voice, that we would in all delight run after your beckoning hand, that your will would take full possession of all of ourselves, so that in our blindness you would be our light, and in our ignorance you would be the very source of our wisdom. Speak to us now, we pray, 
be honored and glorified by your church through the preaching and receiving of that holy word. We ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. C.S. Lewis, in his classic work, as many of you know, The Chronicles of Narnia, is a story that begins with four children discovering an attic wardrobe that at first seems normal enough from the outside, but when they step inside of it, they soon discover an entire new world that was hidden from their view. The world of Narnia with the white witch and the great lord and protector, the lion, Aslan. We find that what seemed to be so ordinary and mundane on the outside turned out to be filled with great mystery and great wonder. In much in the same way, the ancient people of Israel, they also had a normal-looking structure that contained within it things of monumental significance. Israel had the tabernacle of God. Though the tabernacle didn't seem like much from the outside, If one were to ever walk inside behind that very front veil, they would immediately be caught up and confronted with the holy things of God. They would immediately find themselves standing face to face with the holy presence of the Heavenly Father. Now to quickly review, especially for those of you who are visiting or joining us for the first time today, The book of Hebrews was written as a defense, an apologetic, directed to Jewish Christians who were facing brutal pressure and persecution during the apostolic period of the church prior to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Hebrews, this epistle, was written with the purpose to warn and to plead with these Jewish saints not to revert back to that old system of Judaism which had been at that time made obsolete and done away with in Christ Jesus. And at the very heart of the writer's argument for why, why they must not revert back to that old covenant, was because Jesus is far superior. Because Jesus is far better, that in Jesus they have a better priesthood. In Jesus, they have a better mediator. In Christ, they have a better covenant enacted upon better promises. And it's these better things that we find in Christ that brings along with it massive and eternal implications. For the next few weeks, as we work our way through the next two chapters, chapters 9 and 10, Uh, What the writer is going to do as we read and study these two chapters is he's going to lead us up right to the very pinnacle of his argument. That Christ is the better priest, that he is the better place, that he is the better mediator, the better covenant, the better king, and the better promise because of his better sacrifice. Of his better sacrifice. And the writer is going to accomplish this by first laying down for us that very foundation for his argument, which we'll be studying today. Now, specifically in our passage, the writer's going to illustrate 
that the first arrangement, namely that old tabernacle that was served by the Levitical priesthood, that those sacrifices that were made there, though temporarily effective, ultimately served a greater purpose. In other words, the divine purpose of those sacrifices of old was not to ultimately atone for sins, but rather through the Holy Spirit that those sacrifices would serve as a clear illustration for the necessity of the Messiah, of a Savior. Now, before we move on any further, verses 1 through 10 is divided up quite nicely into two subjects here. And some of you probably recognize this while we are reading this together. But what we find in verses 1 through 5 we find the arrangements of the tabernacle. And in verses 6 through 10, we find the priestly service that took place within the tabernacle. And so uh, what I want to do is use these two points as sort of a guide for us as we make our way through this very technical passage. Uh, So again, just to lay it out again for us, verses 1 through 5 will focus on the arrangement of the tabernacle while verses 6 through 10 will focus on the priestly service that took place within the tabernacle. Well, we begin by looking down at verse 1 again. Let's read this together. The writer writes, Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. If you were raised within a Jewish household, and you are brought up with the Torah, and you are taught the words of Moses all throughout your life, then you would have surely had strong affections and a deep love for what would have been the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the special and sacred space for worship. It was the structure that God Himself, through Moses at Mount Sinai, personally designed through Moses the place that stood symbolically for the totality of what the Old Covenant itself was. And it was, in every sense, the very centerpiece that the Old Covenant revolved around. If you were an ancient Israelite living during the time of the wilderness, you would have, no doubt, had imprinted upon your very minds the vivid scene of the tabernacle. You would have daily seen that massive tent wall that stretched across the middle of the camp. That very wall that would have separated the outer court from the inner court. And as you walk through that wall from the outside in, you would have seen two pieces of furniture that would have immediately caught your attention. There would have been a bronze altar upon which sacrifices were made. And there would have also been a bronze laver where the priests would wash themselves prior to carrying out their priestly duties. But perhaps the most amazing thing that would have drawn all your attention afterward would have been what you saw toward the back center of that place. Toward the back center would have been the tabernacle, a rectangular building consisting of two compartments which the writer details out for us here in verse 2. The writer, he refers to the first compartment as the sanctuary, or as some of your translations might have, 
the holy place. If you were to pass through the first veil and walk into that tabernacle, there would have been, verse 2, the lampstand and the table on which the showbread was arranged. Now this is where it's going to get really technical here, so bear with me and try to follow along as best as you can. The lampstand, or what's often called the menorah, would have been made out of one solid piece of pure gold. Uh, It would have had three branches on one side and another three on the other side with the one in the middle. And this piece would have been placed on the left side of that first room. And on the other side of the room to the right, uh, there would have been the table, a table also overlaid with pure gold, which would have held 12 loaves of bread known as the bread of presence. And so what the writer's doing here is detailing out for us that in this first compartment, there were two pieces of furniture, and this was known as, as he says, the holy place. Moving on to verse 3, the writer then guides us from the first compartment through the second veil into the second room known as the holy of holies. Now, before you can even get into the Holy of Holies, again, you would have had to pass through the second veil, which was this massive curtain that divided the tabernacle into two. And the primary difference between that first veil from the second when entering into the holy place to the second veil when entering into the Holy of Holies was not primarily in their thickness or in the order that they came but it was the fact that the second curtain had a cherubim stitched onto it. And the purpose, you might be asking, why the cherubim? Well, the purpose of the cherubim stitched onto that veil was to remind the high priest who was about to enter into the Holy of Holies that what stood behind that curtain was the very symbol for the presence of the God of Israel himself. That large curtain stood there separating the holy place from the most holy of holiest of places to permanently remind everyone that not just anybody could approach God. That not just anyone can freely come to God whenever they so please. But rather that there was in every real sense a heavy price to pay. That blood needed to be spilled. This to say that worship wasn't free, but it was costly. The activity of worship was sacred, it was solemn, and in every way it was perilous. And might I add, friends, the very reason for why we must never take worship at this church lightly In verse 4, the writer goes on to describe the Holy of Holies. And within that room, what we find, and what we would find, is the golden altar of incense. And most importantly, the most important piece of furniture, the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, the very symbol of the immediate presence of God. And the writer continues to detail out for us that Within the ark, what we would find are first the golden jar of manna, which served as a perpetual reminder to the people of God of God's faithful faithful provision. 
Second, Aaron's rod that budded, which served as a reminder that it's God who calls and it's God who appoints man, not man. And lastly, the tablets of the covenant, the Decalogue, the law of God. And on this ark, the writer continues to describe that hovering above were the cherubim of glory. And these cherubim were made and placed in such a way upon that ark that they were positioned looking down right into, as it were, past the mercy seat into the ark itself. As if they were peering into God's faithfulness to his people. Peering into God's sovereignty over his people upon God's law. But as they looked upon the mercy seat, they would have also recognized these cherubim, the impeccable law as it served as an indictment against the very people who broke the law of God and sinned against their Creator. The jar of manna serving as an indictment against the people who had failed to trust in God. Aaron's rod that budded serving as a symbol of a people who were quick and ready to rebel against God's authority at any given moment. Year after year, the high priest would have to enter in and cover that mercy seat and sprinkle that mercy seat with the blood of the sacrifice to demonstrate that God's wrath had been satisfied through atonement. And then seemingly out of nowhere, if you look down, seemingly out of nowhere, the writer then goes on to say something completely out of place. Verse 5, he writes, Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Now what's interesting about this verse is that you can almost catch a glimpse into the writer's mind here. It's as if he's refraining himself from diving deep down into a theological rabbit hole, if you want to say. You can almost feel his desire to go on and expound upon how the Word of God became flesh and how Christ tabernacled with His people. How the Word was the bread of life come down from heaven. How Jesus was the light, the true menorah of the world, and how all of these pieces found within that tabernacle ultimately pointed to the person and work of Jesus Christ himself. It's as if he has to cut himself off short and say, I I really regret the fact that I can't speak and elaborate on this now, but I have to move on. I have to move on because these things we cannot now speak in detail. And so the question that we're left with as his readers is, why? Why not just talk about it, writer? Why not just talk about it? You spent so much time already describing everything within the tabernacle. So why not just spend a little bit more time talking about it? And the reason for why, why this is, is because the writer's main focus within this passage isn't on the things found within the tabernacle, but rather his focus is on what happened within that tabernacle, you see. Much more than the furniture, the writer's main concern was set upon the spiritual realities that took place within those two rooms. 
And so to give any more attention on the structure or furniture of that tabernacle would only obscure the writer's main point that he's trying to demonstrate here. Thus, where we find the writer transition from the arrangement of the tabernacle to the second point, the service of the tabernacle, we read in verse 6, Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. Now in light of the architectural plan drawn out for us by the writer in verses 1 through 5, he now provides for us a description of the priestly ministries that took place within the tabernacle. And to quickly fill in the lines here, as we studied many times previously in the previous chapters, we know that not just anyone can come inside the tabernacle to worship God, but it was only and exclusively reserved for the Levitical priesthood, for the priests, the Aaronic priests. Furthermore, to even be considered a priest, we know that Not just anyone can be a priest. You couldn't apply for it. It wasn't a job opening, in other words. But you needed to have the right qualifications. You had to be from the right tribe. You had to be, or you had to uh, come from the right bloodline. You needed to be the descendant of the right father. The priesthood was a highly selective order and class. And it was this priesthood that exclusively ministered in the holy place of God, always entering in and serving, daily keeping the lamps alive with oil, replacing the loaves of bread every Sabbath day, every morning and evening, offering up incense to the Lord. So as we take a step back and as we examine verse 6, we find this picture of the outer tabernacle To be a place of incredible busyness, filled with constant priestly activity day in and day out, day after day after day. Then the writer continues in verse 7. But into the second part, the high priest went alone once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. And what the writer's trying to do here is he's trying to reiterate what's already been so clearly illustrated by the Holy Spirit through the Old Covenant. In that long line of the Aaronic priests who were called to serve God, it was exclusively to these priests who had an indirect and mediated relationship with God. But at the end of the day, what you find is that these priests, that they still fell short of what they were ultimately called to do and be as priests, as mediators. They were failing in what they were called to ultimately be as they couldn't know God directly and they couldn't know God directly because of their sin. And so year after year, the high priest who was chosen by God, those who took the sacrificial blood of atonement before God Himself, though they were the ones who got the closest to God in that second part of that tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, 
At the end of the day, they too still couldn't perfectly dwell in God's presence, you see. And so when we consider the Holy of Holies, that place that represented the presence of God Himself, when we consider the second veil that blocked it off, it was for the people of God to recognize that access to God was closed. That it was barred and limited. Now think about this with me for a second. Put yourself in the position of an early Israelite. I want you, I want you to picture this with me now. But as you stand there before the tabernacle, you would have clearly seen there right in front of your physical eyes, right there, right in front of you, the tent of meeting that represented the very presence of God. And so in one sense, you would find that God was very near to you. But in a very real sense, in another sense, you would also find that God was very far as none of us would actually be able to go into the holy place except the priests. And no one would be able to enter into the holy of holies except the high priest in that once a year. All this to say that what the writer is doing here is presenting right in front of us this frustrating tension that existed in that old covenant tabernacle. The annual sacrifice that took place on the Day of Atonement, more than minimizing the separation between holy God from holy man, more than bringing God and His people together, the Day of Atonement actually existed to communicate one simple message. And the message is this, that the way to God had been barred. The 19th century theologian Andrew Murray, he describes this situation in this way. He writes, the veil was the symbol of separation between a holy God and sinful man. They cannot dwell together. The tabernacle thus expressed the union of two apparently conf conflicting truths. God called man to come and worship and serve him. And yet he might not come too near. The veil kept him at a distance, you see. Love calls the sinner near, but holy righteousness keeps him back. The Holy One bids Israel to build him a house in which he will dwell, but then forbids them from entering his presence there. Year after year, decade after decade, Century after century, God was teaching Israel a simple lesson. He was communicating to them that their sins must be propitiated. That His wrath must be averted through perfect atonement. That their sins must be expiated. That it must be taken away through a perfect sacrifice. But at the end of the day, what God was teaching them was that the old covenant priesthood, with all the things revolving around the earthly tabernacle, all of that was broken. It was imperfect and deficient. Verse 8, 
We read the Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. The Holy Spirit had been showing something frequently, day by day. The Holy Spirit was signifying something. It was teaching, teaching something. Every day, every time the priests went into the holy place and the high priest went into the holy of holies, God the Spirit was saying that as long as that veil separating the holy of holies, as long as that veil remains up there, the real access to God will never be revealed to you. In other words, the Holy Spirit was signifying that the way into God's presence had to be protected from man's sin. And this is exactly the same thing we find in the Garden of Eden, is it not? This is the exact same lesson that we find in the very beginning when God stationed cherubim to keep sinners out of the garden and that to protect His holy presence. So God establishes the holy place and the holy of holies to communicate to his people that you guys are sinful. You guys have to know that you are utterly and thoroughly sinful so much so that you can't just walk into my presence and think and expect me to be benevolent and kind towards you. I'm willing to dwell in your midst, but you have to understand with absolute clarity that you know who you are and you know who I am as God. This was the message that the Holy Spirit was signifying over and over and over again to His people. And He says in verse 9, that the tabernacle was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience. To the conscience. The Old Covenant clearly communicated and demonstrated a system of barriers separating, separating God from man. Access to God wasn't only difficult, it wasn't only challenging, but we clearly find all throughout the Bible that it was impossible. The Old Covenant and the Old Tabernacle with all of its sacrifices, as we've just read, could never perfect the worshippers' conscience. The conscience, which is that internal moral monitor that communicates our relationship with God, that conscience that steers us to know what's right and what's wrong was never cleansed after the fall. The tabernacle, the priesthood, and all of the sacrifices, was, they were never able to bring about the intended goal of cleansing the worshiper from the inside out so that he might freely approach God. The Swiss reformer Heinrich Bullinger he writes, the Levitical sacrifices could not pacify the consciences of those for whom they were offered. This is because, just as all the other components of the Levitical system rely on and consist merely in external things, 
The same is especially true of the fleshly sacrifices. And he writes this, But sin is not a stain on the body, but on the soul. So that the Levitical, that is, fleshly sacrifices, do not cleanse the conscience of sins. And thus, they are ultimately useless, or rather, they are merely external righteousness. This is, beloved, the way that God had meant it to be. This is what God had planned it to be until verse 10, the Reformation. No, he's not referring to the 16th Protestant Reformation, but what the writer's referring to here is the first and greater Reformation. The original Reformation, the divine Reformation, the redemptive Reformation that was brought about in the person and work of Christ. This is the way that God had intended. This is the message that the Holy Spirit communicated that it's to be this way until the old gives way to the new. And it's only then when the shadow would give way to the substance and the earthly would give way to the heavenly and the promise would give way to the fulfillment in the person and work of Christ. Now after saying all these things, after dealing with such a, again, this is a very highly technical passage. Very technical. Uh, and if you're anything like me, especially as I was studying this text, you might be thinking to yourselves, so what? So what? Who cares about all of this stuff? Who cares of, about all of this tabernacle stuff? This stuff is old. It's boring. Last time I checked, we live post-crucifixion. Last time I checked the calendar, we're now free to worship God in Christ. So what does all of this ancient stuff have anything to do with me today? Well, let me tell you exactly why it matters. First, it matters because there's one thing that hasn't changed from the days of ancient Israel to our own day today. And that is a guilty conscience. Just as sinners had to deal with their guilty conscience back in ancient Israel, beloved sinners today must deal with theirs. And I dare say that there are some of you in here tonight who yourselves have a deeply guilty conscience. Those of you who look at nighttime as the most dreaded part of your day because you know that at the back of you, your mind that when you lay your head down to rest, that there are sins that will flood your mind and haunt you. Guilt that, would, that you want to get rid of, but you just seem to can't. That you can't. Some of you have a guilty conscience that never ceases to gnaw and claw at you no matter how long time passes by. And you might find yourself tired. Tired. Which leads me to the second reason. Studying this passage matters because outward actions can never cleanse the inward conscience. The main message that the Holy Spirit of God is indicating in this text 
is that external things can never deal with the internal reality of the heart. Though we don't have tents, we don't have priesthoods and sacrifices today, beloved, you would be surprised to know, and perhaps this describes some of you in here tonight, you would be surprised to know just how many people there are out there who would give all their money to the church, go to as many confessions that they could, do all sorts of external things just so that they can silence their nagging conscience for a brief little moment. But friends, listen to me very carefully here. The Word of God is clear to say that a guilty conscience can never be dealt with by external measures, no matter what age or year you live. As we've learned tonight, without a new heart, without a conscience that's been cleansed, You cannot in any way draw near to God. And the most awesome yet heartbreaking proof of this is what took place in Jerusalem after the death of Christ. As that veil within that temple, as it was torn in two in the death of Christ, opening the way to God. Have you ever noticed what the, the priests do? The priests... They don't walk boldly through the way into God's presence. They don't look to Jesus as the true Lamb of God. But friends, what we find these priests doing in the greatest tragedies of all is that we find them sewing up that veil that once separated them from God. With their own hands, we find them trying to reestablish that very veil that Barred them from God. Now, friends, is this you? Does this describe you? Having the way to God opened by the blood of Christ, in the words of Apostle Paul in Galatians 3, having begun in the Spirit, are you now trying to perfect yourself by the flesh? If this guilty conscience describes you today, the Lord has for you the very same message that He had for Israel back in antiquity, which is that guilty conscience needs to be dealt with and that by looking to what the Holy Spirit is pointing each and every one of us to here tonight. Look down with me to verse 11. This is what He says. But Christ. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come, with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with His own blood, He entered the most holy place once for all. Brothers and sisters, may I remind you to look to Christ tonight. May I remind you to look to Christ and to Him alone. Do not rely on external things, on external measures. Don't restore that veil that once separated you from the presence of God. But know with full surety that in Christ it's for you to simply, it's for you to simply walk through. It's easy. It's simple and plain, is it not? 
is for you to simply walk through and behold your God in that with a clear and redeemed conscience. This is what the Old Covenant pointed to. To the true sacrifice, the true priest who had opened the way through the veil into the dwelling of God. This was God's intention from the very beginning. For he has said, I will be their God and they my people. As we now come to a close, I want to end our time by asking a question, especially directed to those of you who have yet to trust in Christ. For those of you who aren't believers. And my question is this. What is it that's keeping you from God? Is it your sense of guilt? Is it because of the feeling that you're just unworthy and dirty, defiled, too sinful to come into the presence of God? If so, then you must know that Jesus Christ is God's way to you. In your way to God. And if you would but trust in him. In his life. In his death. In his resurrection. If you would but follow after Christ. As your Lord and Savior. Then God is sure to promise you. In Zechariah 3.4. As we read. He says. Behold. I have taken your iniquity away. I have taken it away from you. And he will give to you his own blood. For salvation. Unbelieving friends. If you're here, it is to this day that the Holy Spirit calls you into true fellowship with God and to the newness of life. In examining the earthly tabernacle tonight, uh, please continue to consider all the things that we've learned tonight uh, as we look forward to the far greater, the heavenly tabernacle and to the far greater high priest as we look forward to studying that next week. Bow with me in a word of prayer. O Lord, we come to you with our consciences torn, calloused, darkened, and marred solely for the reason that we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. Though our iniquities are great and numberless, too much to count, we pray that by the Spirit you would continue to help us to know that you are adequate for our relief. Abundant in mercy and the blood of Christ, the sole means by which can cleanse us from our sin. May godly fear preserve us from sinking. The love of Christ keep us from sinning. And may the triumphs of your kingdom be our joy. We pray these things to God the Father by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, and in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ, who is our great mediator, three in one, one in three. Amen.